Do you believe that? I hope you do. That is our only hope in life and death, that we belong to God and that it is through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, that we have life, we have hope, we find comfort for our guilty consciences, and we have no fear in death because we know that the merit, the righteousness, all that is required of us before God has been provided to us through Jesus. Let's bow in prayer and thank our God for his gift of grace. Lord, we come confessing as we do every week our sinfulness and our need and our weakness, but we also come before you overjoyed and thankful for all that you have given us through your son Jesus. We are not here because we're better than anyone else. This is not, as it is often been said, a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners who have come to receive the healing and the restoration of the gospel. So we thank you. We thank you that you have provided forgiveness and atonement and cleansing through Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that out of the gratitude for that grace, that as we approach your word this morning, we would be overcome with a sense of reverence, a sense of gratitude, and an awareness of what that grace ought to produce in us. Lord, give us a strong desire this morning to hear from you, to obey you, and to live a life that demonstrates that we believe in this gospel and that we want to offer ourselves, our whole lives, as an offering of praise and worship and gratitude to you. So Lord, move in us this morning by your spirit to convict us of sin and to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and to bring about that ongoing change and transformation that you desire. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can open up this morning once again to Luke chapter 6 as we're going to be coming to the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. As you're turning there, I'll just ask you, I know not everybody in here is old enough to remember, but how many of you guys remember all the flooding that took place in 1993? Maybe some of you guys saw that on the news. Some of you may have lived through it and experienced it. I was just a kid at the time, but I remember seeing the videos, seeing the pictures, and really being struck with how damaging and and destructive that flooding can be. I mean, that was a disaster of biblical proportions. It affected about nine states in the upper Midwest, 400,000 square miles of flooding and damage. And for me, again, this was an eye-opener to realize how everything that we depend on on a daily basis, everything we use, all all the, the normal ins and outs of our homes and our lives, all of that can be disrupted and swept away in a moment. Stuck with me. Well, as Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Plain, what Jesus is doing now is bringing his audience to the point of decision. How will they respond to his teaching? And as he does that, he uses the imagery of flooding. He uses this illustration of the destruction that water can bring when it hits a house. And he uses this illustration to describe to his hearers what exactly is at stake. As they respond to his preaching, what is at stake? Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock And when a flood came, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. 
But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus warns all who hear about the futility of a merely verbal commitment to Christ. Calling Jesus Lord is worthless. It does nothing for you if it is not paired with a life of obedience. An empty profession cannot save you. In fact, Jesus points out it leads to disaster. The simple point that Jesus concludes his sermon with is this, that true disciples will submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is not only to trust him and believe him and profess him, but to submit to his lordship and his authority. True disciples obey the word of their master. The reality is there are some who will make a verbal profession. They will claim to believe in Jesus, profess to be his followers, but that profession will not be matched by a life of obedience. To use the language of the book of James, there are some who claim to have faith but have no works. And the question is, what are we to make of this? How should we understand that kind of quote-unquote discipleship? Well, I want to draw two insights from Jesus' words that warn us against a merely verbal commitment to Christ. And the first is this. We find it in verse 46, that an empty profession is a spiritual contradiction. To claim that Jesus is Lord and not obey him is a spiritual contradiction. He asks a piercing question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus asks those that are gathered that day who are hearing the sound of his voice, what do you think that really accomplishes? To call me Lord and not do what I tell you. Why is there such a disconnect that you could call me Lord and not do what it is that I tell you? You see, calling Jesus Lord while walking in disobedience to his word, it's living a lie. It's, a gr- it's gross hypocrisy. It is a spiritual contradiction. The word Lord here means master. It's a term that recognizes the absolute authority of Jesus, that he is Lord. It's admitting that we owe him allegiance. You see, the one who came preaching the good news of the kingdom was the king of the kingdom. He is the one who is the heir of the throne. He is the one who is king of kings and lord of lords who has all authority to rule in and over his kingdom. He is the son of man and the son of God and those who follow him rightly call him lord. It is a recognition of who he is and the absolute authority that he possesses. Calling Jesus lord not only says something about Jesus, But it also says something about the one who's speaking. To acknowledge not only his authority, it also acknowledges our obligation. That if we profess Jesus as Lord, we're acknowledging we are accountable to him. We are under his authority. He is not just the Lord. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is our king. We are his servants. We are his subjects. We are under his rule and accountable to his law. That's what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. Notice Jesus doesn't just say they call him Lord. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? 
There's a repetition here. This is emphatic, doubling down to emphasize this truth, which shows that whoever is speaking here, this, this, you know, he's speaking to a number of different people, pointing out something that's true in their life. He's showing that the one who claims Jesus is Lord is adamant about Jesus' identity and authority and emphatically claiming to be his servant, claiming to be a devoted disciple, a dedicated follower of Jesus. But look at the disconnect. To call Jesus Lord, Lord. Emphatically declaring who he is and what he deserves and also your commitment to him and then not obey his word. Jesus says this is a shocking contradiction. It makes you question whether or not the speaker, whoever's professing, actually believes Jesus is Lord. It makes you question whether they really are a follower of Christ because they don't do what he tells them. Now, what does Jesus have in mind when he says they don't do what he tells them? Well, let's put it in context here. Think about the sermon that Jesus has been preaching. He's been, he opened up in verses 20 through 26 with this listing of blessings and woes. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who mourn, you who are hungry, you who are persecuted for my name's sake. The reality of grace is a, is a promise. Those who follow him are those who believe this good news that Jesus is the one who comes to bring the blessings of God's kingdom, who comes to bring salvation to those who are broken and humble before him, those who come to him with their need to receive his grace. He gives woes to those who are rich, who are self-satisfied, who have no sense of need for Christ, who are self-righteous and self-sufficient, those whom the world may speak well of. Jesus warns of the judgment that is to come. And Jesus has opened this sermon with kingdom promises to be believed, the realities of grace and judgment that gives a perspective on life that is supposed to transform how you live. And then he unpacks that transformation. Verses 27 through 35 calls us to an extraordinary love as sons of the Most High, loving our enemies, doing good even to those who hate us. He follows this up in verse 36 through 38 with a call to mercy, a mercy that reflects the kindness of our Heavenly Father as we forgive, we demonstrate kindness to those in need and to those who wrong us. Jesus then went on to stress the importance of seeing rightly. We need to evaluate both others and ourselves rightly. Otherwise, we follow blind guides. Otherwise, we walk around with a log hanging out of our eye, picking at the speck in someone else's. If we don't see rightly, we might think ourselves to be right with God, when in reality, we might be a bad tree that's producing bad fruit. This is what Jesus has been preaching in short, his message is the good news of the kingdom and then the godly life that flows from faith in the gospel. Think about the people who are standing there that day. The people who would have been hearing this conclusion to Jesus' sermon. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The 12 was right there in the front row. Among them sat a man named Judas, who was a disciple of Jesus. A follower, someone who got to experience over those three years everything that Jesus did and said, and yet we know that his profession was not genuine. There were also others there that day 
sitting in the second and third and 75th row, however many rows deep it went that day. There were others there that would one day walk away and stop following Jesus. In John chapter 6, after some teaching that was difficult for many to receive, it says many of his disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And in verse 66, John writes, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is not a reference to the 12. It is a reference to this larger group that had been following Jesus, listening to his teaching, observing his miracles. And at some point, they decided, you know, this isn't really for me. And they walked away. And it's always been this way. The danger of a false profession has plagued God's people throughout history. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, God says, These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Empty profession is not true discipleship. A verbal profession that lacks a life of devotion, that's not the kind of worship that pleases God. That is not the hallmark of genuine faith. In the Old Testament, we have a story of Israel's first king, a man named Saul. Perhaps some of you know this story. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, he's given a mission to complete where God gives him specific instructions and Saul does not obey. He does half of what God told him to do, but he doesn't finish the job. And in fact, he transgresses God's instructions and explicitly does things God told him not to do. And when Samuel, the prophet, shows up, He rebukes and confronts Saul and reminds him that, listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. As beautiful it is to gather here and sing these songs together, as wonderful it is that you may profess to be a Christian, God is concerned with the substance of your life. Those who truly know Jesus as Savior will submit to him as Lord. This obedience is the evidence of genuine faith. In the parallel text to our text in Luke, the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's that double confession, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Later, Jesus will go on to explain that this doing of the Father's will reveals whether or not a person actually knows God and God actually knows them. This is not salvation by works. This is the litmus test. This is the proof that someone truly has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this life of obedience to Christ doesn't mean that Christians never sin. We all know that. It doesn't mean we never struggle. No one is perfect. None of us obeys Christ perfectly and consistently and comprehensively. We can't as much as we may desire to. But listen, true disciples will do more than simply confess Jesus is Lord. True disciples will seek to live a life that submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We will grieve over our failures when we fall short. And we will seek to put to death those remnants of rebelliousness in our heart that doesn't want to do what God says. An empty profession is a spiritual contradiction. But Jesus gives a second insight 
And this one comes with a helpful illustration. It's in verses 47 through 49. Not only is an empty profession a spiritual contradiction, but secondly, an empty profession results in spiritual disaster. It results in spiritual disaster. Jesus gives us a vivid description here that paints two opposite pictures. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. We find here a contrast, case A and case B. And Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. He's telling us there's really two different types of people. We either respond in faith and obedience or we refuse. No one is a passive listener. Everyone who hears the words of Jesus will fall into one of these two categories. First, Jesus shows us what a response of faith looks like. Notice the verbs that he uses here, the actions that he describes. Verse 47, everyone who, first of all, comes to me, and secondly, hears my words, and third, does them. Those are the actions that pile up in this verse. Those who come to me. This describes those that are present as Jesus teaches. And they've come for a variety of different reasons. Some of them Jesus went and personally recruited. Others were brought there by a friend. Others heard about Jesus and were very interested. Could this be the Messiah? And they're there to explore and discover what it is that he's teaching and and try to understand who it is that Jesus is. There's others that are skeptical. Others, they're cynical. Some that are even hostile to Jesus. They've come there, the Pharisees and the scribes, to catch him tripping up somehow, to to test him, to find a way to discredit him. They've come to Jesus for a number of different reasons. But I think this description of those who come to Jesus is also descriptive today of those who draw near to Christ. Those who sit under the preaching of the word, those who enter into the fellowship of the church, Those who draw near to Christ to hear what it is that he has to say. And Jesus says, those who come to him and secondly, hear. Those who hear his words. Those that are exposed to the message of Christ. You all are hearing the truth of Christ today. It's been read in our scripture readings. It's been sung about. We're literally reading the words of Jesus on the pages of scripture together right now. Perhaps you've read the Bible some for yourself before this. Perhaps you've been in conversation with other Christians who tell you what the truth of Scripture says. Perhaps you've read Christian books that have helped to explain what it is that the Bible teaches. Coming to Jesus always means being confronted with his word. You can't come to Jesus apart from hearing his word. Whoever comes and hears, but here's the key, the third verb, Whoever does them. Whoever does them. This is the key. A response of faith is always demonstrated in obedience. Not perfection, but a consistent submission to the will of God as it is revealed in his word. And Jesus says, you know what this man is like? He's like someone who builds a house. 
Now, not many of us today have actually built a house. Some of you have. I've heard some of the stories. Um, I couldn't build my house. It was built in 1968. I'm not that old. I've rebuilt like a lot of it because it was falling apart. But as you think about building a house, don't think about a split-level home in the suburbs today. Don't think about a two-story farmhouse in rural Kansas. Don't, don't think about the way we build our homes. They didn't have backhoes and skid steers and things like that to dig out a good foundation so that when that Kansas tornado comes, you can go in the basement, right? Different part of the world, different era in history. They had to build by hand, and they didn't have basements, Okay, and, and the ground in that region, because there was, the, the rains were seasonal, they didn't get rain all year round, the ground was often hard packed. It was dry. There's a, an upper crust on the top level that was difficult to dig through. So digging was difficult, but it was worth it. And Jesus says, the one who does his word is like a man who, when he builds his house, he says, he dug deep, verse 48. He dug deep. That digging is hard work. That digging takes time. That digging, though, is labor that will not be seen. I mean, think about that. Nobody's going to walk up to your new house and go, wow, those are some really nice footers you got there. It's, it's below the surface. This investment of time and sweat and effort will not be seen but the result is a house that is built on the rock, not resting on topsoil, but down to the level of the bedrock. And this choice to dig deep and build on the rock, Jesus says, reveals wisdom because the bedrock is solid. It doesn't change. It doesn't shift. The man who builds like this understands what's at stake. He knows how houses should be built. Some of you who have fixed your houses know that whoever did it the first time didn't know how houses should be built, how electricity should be run, how sheetrock should be finished, how the plumbing should be set up. And you kind of have to go back and fix it, right? But the man who digs deep knows the right way to do it, and he doesn't take shortcuts. He has the integrity and the forethought to do it right, to do it right the first time. And so Jesus says that when the flood comes... When the water is flowing, when the soil is eroding, when the hydrostatic pressure is building, that the structural integrity of the house is tested. And when it's tested, it stands because it's been built on the rock. The imagery of the rock is a picture of stability, a picture of strength, a picture of trustworthiness. It's really a picture of the unchanging nature and character of God. All throughout the Old Testament, God is likened to a rock. We don't have time this morning to read all the verses because it is so common throughout the Old Testament to refer to God this way. I'll just read you a small selection. Psalm 18, 31. Who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? Psalm 62, verse 2. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then later in verse 7 of Psalm 62, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge, is God. Psalm 95.1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Isaiah 26.4, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. God is our rock. To build on the rock 
speaks of a life that is founded on and rests upon God and his promise and his provision and his protection. But listen to what the prophet Isaiah writes. We find this promise about what God, our rock, our foundation is going to do. In Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. God the Father, who is our rock, who is our fortress, upon whose power and promise rests our salvation and our very life, he promised to lay a foundation, to set a stone in Zion. This is a promise of the Messiah. This is what God promises to do through Jesus. Jesus is our rock, the one who is the cornerstone, who is our foundation. God sent his son. And so for us to build on the rock is to rest in God's promise of salvation through Jesus, to trust in God's revelation through Jesus, to cling to God's promise by embracing his son, Jesus. This is the only way to survive the testing and the trial of the flood. The flood may be trials in life. It might be losing your job. It might be cancer. It might be conflict. It might be some sort of physical suffering. It might be grief and loss. If you haven't experienced trials, if you haven't experienced deep and profound suffering and sorrow, then you will at some point. Talk to some of the people in the room that have a little more gray hair than you, and you will learn this truth that all you have to do is live long enough, and you will have your chance to experience suffering, loss, trial, difficulty, conflict, adversity. And listen, we all go through deep waters, but it is only those who know Christ who are confident in his word. It is only those who abide in him and rest in him and trust in him and obey his word. They're the ones who are able to persevere. Faith in Christ means stability. It means we're not destroyed by our trials. It means we're actually strengthened and purified by those trials. But at a deeper level, I think the flood that Jesus refers to here speaks of even more than just the difficulties and adversity, the storms and the floods of this life. I think Jesus has in mind, at the end of the day, the ultimate test. When we are actually on trial, when we stand before almighty, holy God in the final judgment. Psalm 1 verse 5 says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There is an eternal destiny, a final destination for all of us. And whether or not your life, your hope, your salvation is founded on the rock or founded on something else will determine your experience in eternity. It's only through faith in Christ that we will be able to stand in that day. Believing in his gospel, clothed, as we sang earlier, in his righteousness, his merit. It's only by standing in his grace that we will be able to stand in that day. Building on the rock means we are founded in Christ 
and we're able to stand in the judgment because of him. But not everyone responds to Jesus this way in faith. Not everyone obeys the word. Not everyone builds their house on the rock. Jesus says there are some who hear, verse 49, but they don't obey. He says the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And he paints a tragic picture of this person. The man who builds with no foundation, you have to admit this kind of life is easier. It's way less work. It's faster. It's cheaper, right? To not go through all the time and the expense and the effort to dig and to found it on the rock. And it may even look fine on the surface at first, but what happens when the flood comes upon this house? Well, notice the two descriptions that Jesus gives. He says, when the stream broke against it, this is at the end of verse 49, he says, immediately it fell. Immediately it fell. This house had no chance. It isn't even close. This is not some sort of gradual erosion. This is instant destruction. He says, immediately it fell. And then he concludes with this, and the ruin of that house was great. This is not minor damage. This is complete disaster. Total loss. Think about that. And that day, they didn't have homeowner's insurance. Some of you have maybe had flood damage in your house. Some of you have maybe had a fire. You've had smoke damage in your house or even lost your home. We have homeowner's insurance. Even then, it's still a major difficulty to go through replacing everything you own. But imagine back in that day, there's no homeowner's insurance. All your investment, everything you've built in your life is gone. All your possessions are either damaged or destroyed. All your food supply ruined. Your shelter from the elements is gone. Everything you own is swept away in this swirling brown torrent of water. It's hard to imagine how anyone could recover from such a catastrophe. Immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The question is why? Why is it that a life that's not built on Christ will experience such disaster? Why is it such a dangerous game to reject the word of Jesus? Well, consider the words of Jesus are truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you reject the truth, if you reject the light that that truth is, then you walk in darkness And this is spiritual blindness. And as Jesus said earlier, if you're a blind man who follows blind guides, you're both going to fall into a pit. The words of Jesus are truth. The way of Jesus is wisdom. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus tells this same parable. And in that passage, he describes these two individuals. One is a wise builder and the other is foolish. He uses those terms, wisdom and foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us that Jesus is the very wisdom of God. To reject the words of Jesus is to reject his divine wisdom, which means you are a fool and you are bound to reap the destruction that folly brings. The words of Jesus are truth. The way of Jesus is wisdom. And the message of Jesus is salvation. In John 6, 68, when some of those disciples left, Jesus looks carefully at the 12 and he says, are you going to leave also? 
And we all know how Peter famously answered, Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. But if you reject the words of Jesus, if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are headed not for life, but for death. Not for heaven, but for hell. Not for joy and glory, but for judgment. You're headed for destruction. What a tragedy, what foolishness to call Jesus Lord, Lord, but then fail to obey. This is hypocrisy. This is foolishness. This is unbelief. And Jesus says there's only these two options, these two responses, and it leads to one of these two outcomes. You either stand or you fall. I want to draw out two implications for us from the conclusion of this message. Number one, this is a reminder to us of the exclusivity of the gospel. This parable, this conclusion to Jesus' sermon underscores for us the exclusivity of the gospel, that the only way to salvation is through Christ. Our life must be built only and always on Christ. There's not another way. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You don't have options. It is Christ or nothing. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This parable makes absolutely clear for us the exclusivity of the gospel. To quote the well-known hymn, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand, all other ground is what? It's sinking sand. Don't build your house there. Jesus is not just an option. Jesus is not just a way. He is more than simply a useful resource for some people. Jesus is our only hope, the only means of salvation. And you either come to him and you hear his words and you believe and obey, or you hear his words and you say no. Really for us, this, is, this idea of the exclusivity of the gospel is on the one hand really a cause for gratitude. Jesus is the only way. Salvation only comes through him. And guess what? He came and offered us that salvation. We can build our house on the rock. He has provided a way of salvation for us. For those of us who hear his words, we have come to him and we've believed. Good news. We can be assured that our house is built on the rock. That's something to be grateful for. Consider where we would be if Jesus didn't come. There wasn't another way. There wasn't another path. We didn't have other options. It was God sends his son Jesus to save us or we perish. So this truth of the exclusivity of the gospel is not just a rational argument, although it is that. It's actually something we should be profoundly grateful for, that God has provided the way. But this truth, the exclusivity of the gospel, is also a warning. If you walk away from Christ, you are walking away from the only access to life, the only hope of forgiveness, the only door, and you will be helpless to face the floods of life. You'll be on your own, and you will be on your own, even worse, on the last day. 
So this text teaches us about the exclusivity of the gospel. But secondly, it shows us the evidence of genuine faith. That's a second implication, a a timeless principle we can draw from this text. The gospel is the only way, but also there is evidence of genuine saving faith. And I think we can look at this truth, this principle at two levels. Um, it, It offers a stark illustration of the difference between those that are lost and those who are saved. This is a matter of salvation. Those who are spiritually alive and those who are spiritually dead. Those who are reconciled to God and those who are still his enemies. Despite what the mouth may say, the life will bear testimony to the reality of who and what we are. This takes us back to last week. Every tree that bears good fruit is a good tree. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we are will be reflected in what we do. This fits very well with the context. And there's a warning here. Don't deceive yourself into thinking you're something that you are not. You can go to church, you can say the right things, but has your life been transformed by the power of the gospel? Because an empty profession will simply not do. Genuine faith bears evidence. But I also think there's an application here for believers You may say, I I do know Jesus as my Savior. I have been born again. I trust in the gospel, and I'm not perfect, but I really am following Jesus. What does this text mean for me today? Well, I think this text does instruct believers about the necessity of obeying our master. Christians, when we hear the words of Jesus, when we hear the words of his apostles, when we hear the words of the Old Testament that Jesus affirms that are inspired by the very spirit of Christ, it's all his. So I'm not trying to highlight the red letters over the rest, okay? When we hear the revelation of Christ in the word, we must resolve to act. Brothers, sisters, we must resolve to act, to obey, to do what God calls us to do. We rejoice that Jesus is our rock. We rejoice that our salvation is in him. We rejoice that he promises to give to us in his grace the kingdom itself, life and glory and blessing, even though we are poor and needy and weak. And then we move from that confession of faith to a right response of obedience. We live out our profession that Jesus is Lord by submitting to his authority. Let me just read to you from James, the half-brother of Jesus. It says in James 1.22, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But listen, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Friends, we want to be a church that dives deep into the words of Jesus, to understand the truth of what he says, that grasps the the breadth and the depth of the theology and the doctrine of Scripture. And then we want to be a church that lives that out, that understands the implications of the doctrines we believe. Scripture promises us that there is blessing in doing what the Word says. So this text may expose for you today that you don't know Christ, that your profession is empty, 
And you need to be saved. You need to come to Christ and say, I knew that you were the Lord, but I had not bowed my knee to you as my Lord. And you need to come to the cross and to repent, to acknowledge your sinfulness, your rebellion, and your need, and cry out for his mercy. Embrace him as your Savior by faith. Embrace him as your Lord. If you're a Christian today, you may need to recognize areas in your life that are out of step with God's word and resolve today to go from here, resolving to do what it is that Christ calls you to do. So how about you? Does your life reflect a submission to the lordship of Christ? Are you resolved to do his word no matter the cost? Do you have the kingdom perspective of Luke 6, verse 20 through 26? Does that shape how you think? Do you demonstrate the extraordinary love of verses 27 through 35? Do you demonstrate the mercy of verses 36 through 48? Do you rightly evaluate others and rightly evaluate yourself according to the word of Christ? Does the word of Christ shape how you see? Do you very simply believe Jesus and obey his word? Listen, if you call Jesus Lord and claim to be his disciple, Jesus says your life will be oriented by his word. It will be marked by faith in his promises, obedience to his commands, and a desire to reflect the character of your heavenly father. It's only in believing Christ, trusting Christ, and obeying Christ that we can have the spiritual stability we need in this life and that we can have confidence of our eternal security in the next. Let's pray together. Father, it is sobering to recognize that it's possible to listen, but not actually hear the true words of life. It's sobering to think that some could hear the story of Christ's death and resurrection, that they could hear the conviction of the law that we are sinners who fall short, that they could hear of the glory of who Jesus is as Lord over all, and yet walk away living for self, trusting in self. Lord, it is sobering to think that even among 12 disciples, there can be a Judas, and even among a crowd of eager followers, some will fall away, and that even in a church like ours, there can be attenders and even members who are deceived, who have a merely verbal profession. Lord, I acknowledge that I, as a pastor, can't always see those things. Lord, sometimes we even deceive ourselves. So what we're asking for this morning is that you would illuminate in the heart among those here whether or not they actually know you as Lord. Bring about a necessary conviction. And I pray that you would move sinners Move them from a reliance on self. Move them from enslavement to their own desires and lusts. And move them towards faith in Christ. Bring them to a point of brokenness and submission to your absolute authority over them. May they trust in the gospel and believe that only you can save them. And surrender their lives to you. 
Lord, this is a work of your grace that we can't manufacture. And so we're simply asking you to do it. You know the need. You see it. And Lord, for those of us today who do know you, we do thank you that you've provided a rock for us to stand on. You've provided good news of a kingdom that is coming, hope of salvation, resurrection from the dead, forgiveness from sins, belonging in your family, and you give all of that to us by your grace. We thank you. And I ask, Father, that we who have committed to follow Christ would be eager to obey everything that you show us. Lord, overcome our fears, overcome our pride, free us from our apathy, forgive us for being slow to obey. Lord, make us dissatisfied with merely hearing your word. Give us an eagerness today to do everything that you command. I pray that you would sanctify us, Lord, grow us in our faith and our love for you. And may the faith that you have planted in our hearts work itself out to bear real fruit that testifies that we not only profess you are Lord, we have not just confessed that truth, but we really do believe it. And it has come to shape how we live. Lord, thank you for these simple truths that are laid out so clearly in your teaching. It's amazing to hear these illustrations and to see these simple truths and to feel the weight of them. We ask that your word would leave a mark on our lives as we go from here today and that you would be glorified as we receive what you have for us. Amen.